Welcome to the Say the Word podcast, where we'll dig into words and language as tools for curiosity. I'm your host, Cindy Givinoli, and together we're going to explore how language is used in literature, memoir, poetry, and all kinds of fiction and nonfiction to connect us to what it means to be human and how to use curiosity to peel back the layers of what's keeping us from living the rich, meaningful lives we were always meant to be living. Hello, hello. Welcome to the first episode of what I am calling season four of the Say the Word podcast. Season three was pretty truncated and sporadic, and I appreciate your patience as I did my very best to wrangle the ups and downs and the surprises that made up my 2022. It was a year, y'all, and I have to admit that I am pretty excited to be beginning a fresh one here. So I want to dive right into our episode. I cannot wait to get in today's, into today's passage from Louise Erdrich's The Roundhouse. Before I do, however, I would love to revisit a topic that we have talked about here before, since it always seems to pop up when people start talking about their reading goals for the year. It's this idea that will not seem to go away, that fiction is somehow less valuable or meaningful than nonfiction. I saw yet another social media caption just this morning where the person denigrated fiction as being solely, quote, candy for our brains. And he advocated making 2023 a, quote, sugar-free reading year. To borrow a phase from fifth graders everywhere, barf. Look. Read whatever you want to read and read it for whatever reason pleases you. I am not here to dictate your choices. And while I think reading for joy and entertainment alone is a perfectly valid reason for picking up a book, seriously, why does fun get such a bad rap? If you are in need of a higher purpose to justify your reading choices I want to share this little passage from the introduction of George Saunders' new writing craft book, A Swim in a Pond in the Rain. He says, In short, Steinbeck was writing about life as I was finding it. He'd arrived at the same questions I was arriving at, and he felt that they were urgent as they were coming to feel urgent to me. The Russians, when I found them a few years later, worked on me in the same way. They seem to regard fiction not as something decorative, but as a vital, moral, ethical tool. They changed you when you read them, made the world seem to be telling a different, more interesting story, a story in which you might play a meaningful part and in which you had responsibilities. Oh man, I love that. A vital, moral, ethical tool that helps us understand how we can play a meaningful part in the world in which we live, a world in which each of us has responsibilities. Again, I know I've talked about this here before, so I will leave it at that. But I do hope that as we all go out into the world, bringing our curiosity to bear, that we can be more open and receptive than my small-minded social media dude here. Books of all sorts, both fiction and nonfiction, broaden our understanding of the world, whether their National Book Award-winning pieces of literary genius or the sugary delights of teenagers fighting their way through a zombie apocalypse. 
Speaking of National Book Award winning pieces of literary genius, let's start moving toward today's passage. Y'all, Louise Erdrich is an enrolled member of the Turtle Mountain Band of the Chippewa, a federally recognized tribe of the Anishinaabe. Her books feature Native American settings and characters, and she is widely acclaimed as one of the most significant writers of the second wave of the Native American Renaissance. She has written 28 books in all. They include fiction, poetry, children's books, and many of them have been either nominated for or won everything from a Pulitzer to the National Book Award. She is an incredibly gifted writer and storyteller, and I do not think it's an exaggeration to say that her body of work is life-changing to anyone who spends any real time with it. Now, today's passage is from her novel, The Roundhouse, which did indeed win the National Book Award for Fiction in November 2012. Now, there aren't any direct spoilers in today's excerpt, nor any direct references to the core conflict of this novel, so I'm going to proceed without some of the customary fiction warnings. Now, I do want to note here, for any of you who may want to read this novel in its entirety, which I cannot recommend highly enough, it does contain some traumatic elements and scenes. And if you are someone who likes to know when a content warning is appropriate, you may want to do just a little bit of research on your own to make sure that this is a book that you can handle safely. Take care of yourself. Actually, you know what? I think this might be a good place to make an additional note. In this podcast, I attempt to take a single tiny slice of someone's larger creative work and look at how it can apply to our lives on a micro level. This is fraught work and it is not without its issues. This novel and today's episode is really a perfect example of my attempt to navigate this with integrity. And I do want to simply acknowledge that, you know, I'm, I'm probably not going to always do this perfectly. This novel in particular centers around the topic of sexual violence toward Native, Native American women and the infinite ways that our systems fail to serve these victims and their communities over and over and over again. Louise Erdrich's gift for story and craft created a book that is so deeply powerful and moving and enraging and heartbreaking. And in absolutely no way do I want to diminish any part of this and the specific story that she is telling with this work. You know, in my effort to broaden the ideas and the small excerpts that I pull on this podcast and find ways to tie them to the universal struggles we all share as humans, I also want to make it clear that this novel and all work by BIPOC writers sharing the specific stories of their own underrepresented communities is vital to understand in its full context. I am deeply committed to diversity in the writing that I share on this podcast, and I believe wholeheartedly that reading the stories and writing of people who are different from me in race, class, gender, sexuality, and experience as a whole is absolutely critical to my own learning and unlearning. And I will continue to share that work here as best I can. If you believe that I have missed the mark or that I could be doing this better, I want to know. I understand that intention and impact are two different conversations, and I always appreciate any feedback that can help me move through this world and this work better. Okay, so let's do this. 
This is from Louise Erdrich's award-winning novel, The Roundhouse. I had to do what I had to do. This act was before me. In the uncanny light, a sense of dread so overwhelmed me that tears started in my eyes in a single choking sound, a sob maybe, a wrench of hurt burst from my chest. I crossed my fists in the knitting and squeezed them against my heart. I didn't want to blurt out the sound. I didn't want to give voice to this royal of sensation. But I was naked and tiny before its power. I had no choice. I muffled the sounds I made so that I alone could hear them come out of me, gross and foreign. I lay on the floor, let fear cover me, and I tried to keep breathing while it shook me like a dog shakes a rat. I lay under this spell for maybe half an hour, and then it went away. I hadn't known whether it would or not. I had clenched my whole body so tightly that it hurt to let go. I was sore when I got up off the floor like an old man with joint pains. I shuffled slowly up the stairs to my bed. Pearl had stayed by me all along. She'd huddled next to me. I kept her with me now. As I fell into a darker sleep, I understood that I had learned something. Now that I knew fear, I also knew that it was not permanent. As powerful as it was, its grip on me would loosen. It would pass. man, she's so good, right? Okay, so in many ways, this passage is pretty straightforward, but let's come in a little closer and look at it one paragraph at a time. There are two elements of this first paragraph that I want to touch upon briefly before we move into the meat of today's discussion with the second paragraph. First up are these initial couple of sentences where our narrator, a 13-year-old boy named Joe, says... I had to do what I had to do. This act was before me. I had to do what I had to do. Now, how often is this the case when it comes to facing the hardest moments of our lives? I would guess that for most of us, most of the time, those moments or experiences that have been the most difficult we've ever dealt with have felt impossible to avoid. Sometimes they are things that we have no control over, illness or death or loss or trauma. And sometimes they're things that we technically have choice around, but the consequences of making a different choice are so far beyond the realm of acceptable that they feel like we have no choice or at least no meaningful choice. Like Joe here, there are moments in our lives where we are compelled to act or compelled to deal with something that feels absolutely impossible to deal with. And these moments change us. This is the second element I want to pause on in this paragraph. Erdrich Carey captures this level of fear and dread and pain so fully as she writes Joe's embodied experience of it here. He describes this moment of overwhelming dread and says a wrench of hurt burst from his chest. Oh, that's it, right? It was a pain that broke him open, a fear so deep that he was terrified to so much as give it sound. He says, 
I didn't want to give voice to this royal of sensation, but I was naked and tiny before its power. I had no choice. This is just so visceral, isn't it? Naked and tiny before its power. Uh, the utter vulnerability of this. And looking more closely at the sentence, naked and tiny before its power. What's power? The fear, the dread, the hurt, the royal of sensation rooted in all of the above? This imagery really captures me. Naked and tiny before its power. When have you felt that way in the face of your own pain or your own fear? And as much as he didn't want to give voice to the hurt and the fear, being so powerless in the face of it, he couldn't help the sound escaping him. He had no choice. He says, I muffled the sounds I made so that I alone could hear them come out of me, gross and foreign. There's something really powerful here. This idea that this kind of pain and fear must have an outlet, that they cannot be repressed no matter how hard we try to repress and suppress them, that they will come out. Here he tries to muffle the sounds that won't be held back, works to keep them private, and he calls them gross and foreign. This reminds me of episode 24, Undercut, where David James Duncan's character talks about the way some quote, long-lived insidious problems simply slip us off to one side of ourselves. That passage was dealing with those insidious problems where this one is looking at the acute experience Joe is in the actual midst of. But that language of slipping off to one side of ourselves and Joe talking here of emitting a sound in his pain and fear that felt gross and foreign really touches on the same way these traumas can make us feel so outside of ourselves, strangers in our bodies and in our lives, strangers to ourselves. This idea and the way he says he muffled the sounds so that he alone could hear them. There's a sense of isolation, right? Is our fear and our pain ever more overwhelming than when we feel utterly alone in and with it? And before I move on, I just want to take a moment with the final sentence of this first paragraph. He says, I lay on the floor, let fear cover me, and I tried to keep breathing while it shook me like a dog shakes a rat. Oh, man. He lets fear cover him, and he tries to keep breathing while fear shook him like a dog shakes a rat. Well, her simile of a dog with a rat is so, so potent in itself. This sentence also conjures another image for me. I can see fear like this massive ocean wave, and it's covering him as really the wave crashing over him, sweeping his feet out from under him, trying to breathe while it pummels him end over end against the shore, that sense of powerlessness against its force, just trying to pull enough air into the lungs to hang on. And how incredible, right, that he leaned into this instinct to breathe through it. You know, we all know this by now, right, that breathing impacts how we cope with things. An article in Scientific American that I will, of course, link in the show notes discusses studies around ways breathing impacts and is impacted by our emotional states. It walks through a few techniques for slowing and deepening our breathing. The author of the article states, quote, 
Other work suggests that the emotional impact of the breathing done in cardiac coherence and various other kinds of exercises stems not only from the effects on the periphery, on the parasympathetic nervous system, but also from effects on the central nervous system. Breathing may well act directly on the brain itself. He goes on to say later, Beyond any direct effects produced by slowed breathing, the attention given to inhaling and exhaling may play a role in the brain's response. In 2016, Anselm Dahl and his colleagues, all then at the Technical University of Munich, showed that this attentional focus eases stress and negative emotions, in particular by activating the dorsomedial prefrontal frontal cortex, a regulatory area of the brain, and by reducing activity in the amygdala, which is involved in these emotions. So Joe's instinct to breathe through his fear, shaking him like a dog shakes a rat, was likely exactly the right way to move through it. I also want to point out the language at the beginning of the sentence, where he says, he let fear cover him. The word let implies some level of agency, right? At least some small manner of choice to allow fear to wash over him completely while he tried to breathe through its impact. Whether it was a wave he understood he couldn't outrun or some deeper need to confront it head on, Joe's use of the word let and the agency it implies is huge. This is what it can look like when we hear the advice to stay with our feelings. Joe may not have felt that he had any choice in doing what he had to do, no choice in the dread and pain and fear that overwhelmed him as he understood what he felt he had to do. But the small assertion of agency as he chose to not run or numb those feelings, but to lay on the floor and let fear cover him while it shook him like a dog shakes a rat, to stay with it, to breathe through it, is arguably exactly the reason the second paragraph of this passage could come to pass. So let's turn our attention there. I want to reread reread the entire second paragraph again since it's, you know, been a minute since we heard it. I lay under this spell for maybe half an hour and then it went away. I hadn't known whether it would or not. I had clenched my whole body so tightly that it hurt to let go. I was sore when I got up off the floor like an old man with joint pains. I shuffled slowly up the stairs to my bed. Pearl had stayed by me all along. She'd huddled next to me. I kept her with me now. As I fell into a darker sleep, I understood that I had learned something. Now that I knew fear, I also knew that it was not permanent. As powerful as it was, its grip on me would loosen. It would pass. Man, there are some huge ideas here. The first two sentences, I lay under the spell for maybe half an hour and then it went away. I hadn't known whether it would or not. He did not know whether feeling like a rat being shaken by a dog, a fear so overwhelming him, would ever go away or not. This is so spot on, right? When we are in the throes of intense emotion and experience, it feels impossible to conceive that it will ever end, that there will ever be room in our lives for any other emotions. Fear is famous for making us feel this way, right? I also think of grief here. And this can also be true of love, can it? In the midst of intense emotion, we can truly question whether our lives will ever contain any feelings other than the one overwhelming us in that moment. 
And I think it's important to note that there is no space most of the time for logic to convince us otherwise. We can be told a million times that this intensity can't be sustained, that we'll learn how to carry our grief or our love will mellow into something that allows room for other cares as well. But when we are eyeballs deep in the midst of it, we aren't sure that that could really be true, right? I want to come back in a moment to the next section and jump to the last few lines. He says, I understood that I had learned something. Now that I knew fear, I also knew that it was not permanent. As powerful as it was, its grip on me would loosen. It would pass. Again, this is huge, right? Now that I knew fear, I also knew that it was not permanent. With this in mind, I want to look at the sentence. I was sore when I got up off the floor like an old man with joint pains. Like an old man with joint pains. Joe is a 13-year-old boy, a child at the beginning of this book. But this right here, this is the moment he leaves childhood behind, isn't it? He realizes that he learned something. But he learned two things, didn't he? He says first, now that I knew fear, and he means this kind of fear. He now knows that this kind of fear exists. Fear that can shake you like a dog shakes a rat. Fear that is so intense that you aren't sure it will ever end, where an existence without it can feel inconceivable while it shakes you. The kind of fear that wrenches sounds out of you that are gross and foreign because it has changed you in such a profound way as to make you a stranger to your former self. And he learned that this kind of fear, regardless of the ways it changes you, regardless of its power, would eventually loosen its grip, would eventually pass, was not permanent. And I think it's the second piece that forms the moment Joe steps into adulthood. He's stepping towards it from the beginning of this passage, acknowledging that he had to do what he had to do, acknowledging the dread and pain and fear, choosing to stay with that pain and fear and to breathe through it as it rocked him, learning that this kind of fear and pain even exist. This arguably marks the end of his childhood. But it's in this recognition that even fear this intense, even fear this life-changing will eventually let us go. The impermanence of such fear and pain. This is where he steps into adulthood. Some of us have these kinds of benchmark moments, a clear shearing away of the innocence of childhood, the bone-deep understanding of impermanence that we can point to and see where our adulthood began. Some of us don't. For some, it was a more gradual understanding reached after living through several cycles of more subtle realizations. The high school love that broke our hearts, the friendship that faded, the inevitable losses that come, accompany the, the passage of time. But fear shows up over and over in every life. It shows up in the small risks, the tiny ways we push out of our comfort zones, whether it's pitching an idea at work or trying a hairstyle that feels radical to us or simply saying no to commitments that we don't want to take on for whatever reason. It shows up in every creative endeavor and every time we try something new, every time we start a conversation with a stranger, reach out to one another for support, share a part of us that is vulnerable. And while it may seem like a throwaway, I want to point out one last thing here. Point to the sentence in the middle of this second paragraph where he says, 
Pearl had stayed by me all along. She'd huddled next to me. I kept her with me now. Pearl is his dog. We may be tempted to write her off, but we see right in the tone of these sentences that her support was vital to him. In the first paragraph, he says that he muffled the sounds that came out of him so that he alone could hear them. But as he comes out from under the, quote, spell of his fear, he acknowledges that Pearl had stayed by him all along, that he'd never been entirely alone. I think this is an important part of this discussion of his stepping into adulthood as well. Pearl had stayed with him all along, and he acknowledges that. And in another subtle act of agency, he says, I kept her with me now. He opted to keep his support system with him. He reached for her. Throughout the book, Joe relies heavily on several characters for for support through his family's trauma, not the least of which are his closest friends. But in this moment of change, of confronting this level of pain and fear, Pearl is who he keeps by his side who he leans into. I get this. When I was going through a particularly brutal round of chemotherapy in my 20s, I struggled to share my fear and vulnerability with the people in my support system, not because I didn't love them or because I doubted their love for me, but because it felt too big. I didn't have the words and I didn't have the space inside my own fear to find them. Our dog at the time was a scrappy little rescue named Pickle. And that dog laid next to me day after day on the bathroom floor as I walked, worked through one of the hardest and loneliest times in my life. She was the only support I knew how to manage, and she played a crucial role in my emotional and mental well-being during that time. This doesn't always take the form of a pet. For many of us, figuring out how to share our heaviest burdens with others is unbelievably difficult. Often the gateway to accepting support from our loved ones is accepting support from someone outside our closest circle. It might seem counterintuitive, but sometimes our our anxiety around being judged or rejected by our loved ones can get in the way. Sometimes we simply don't want to quote-unquote burden them with whatever it is that we're dealing with. Sometimes what we're dealing with is covered in shame therapists, social workers, support groups, online support communities. It can so often be the case that these, quote, strangers are who we can lean into first, where we can accept the support that can get us through this first wave of whatever it is we're struggling with. And sometimes it's an animal who huddles by our sides. But Joe's seemingly small choice to keep Pearl with him, to reach out to another living being for the support he needed to carry him through the realization that his fear would loosen its grip, is a crucial part of that stepping into adulthood. Like his instinct to breathe through the worst waves of fear, his instinct to not be alone was a critical part of his learning in this moment. We all need support in our darkest moments. We all need lifelines that can get us to shore. Sometimes those are our friends or family. Sometimes they are experts or strangers. Sometimes they are the animals that we've formed a bond with. Reaching for those lifelines is part of being an adult. Whether it's the smaller fears in our day-to-day lives, as we work to move through and embrace the new, the unfamiliar, the creative, 
or it's the bigger fears we confront in the realities of being human, the losses and unanticipated changes and the vulnerabilities that leave us feeling exposed and raw. We can learn beside Joe here. We can come to know fear, learn to stay with it and our pain as it washes over us, leaning into our support networks for every kind of every kind and doing our best to breathe through it as it shakes us. We can hold steady to the knowledge that while it's powerful and real, it will eventually loosen its grip on us. It will pass. And on the other side of it, armed with that knowledge, may be a new kind of life. Again, this excerpt is from Louise Erdrich's award-winning novel, The Roundhouse, which, as always, I will link in the show notes at cindygiminoli.com backslash podcast. Also in the show notes there, I will link a few organizations working against sexual violence, especially against Native American women. Please consider visiting their websites, educating yourself, and making a donation if you have the means to do so. Okay, so this week's listener contribution comes from Tammy B. She says, Hey there, Cindy. I recently read the book Quiet by Susan Cain, and it had a huge impact on my family. I am an introvert, as is my oldest son, while my wife and younger son are both very extroverted. This book helped me have the words to better express my own needs, advocate for my oldest, as well as better understand my wife and my youngest. I know that there's a lot more nuance to the whole introvert-extrovert thing, but this book really helped us. I want to share one quote in particular that really opened the door to communication between my wife and I. And the quote, Introverts have wide open information channels, causing them to be flooded with stimulation and over aroused, while extroverts have tighter channels, making them prone to under, under arousal. Over arousal doesn't produce anxiety so much as the sense that you can't think straight, that you've had enough and would like to go home now. Under arousal is something like cabin fever. Not enough is happening. You feel itchy, restless, sluggish, like you need to get out of the house already. Anyway, I thought I'd share in case this was useful to any of your listeners. Thank you. I'm really looking forward to your podcasts coming back whenever you get to it. Oh, thanks for sharing this, Tammy. As someone who considers myself an outgoing introvert, this book was a big affirmation for me in a lot of ways. And I know so many people who share your feelings that it helped them better communicate with and understand their loved ones. So thank you so much, Tammy. I am always looking for more of these listener contributions. So I always appreciate it if you could share yours with me. Okay, in my next episode, we are getting back to poetry. In the meantime, be sure to stay curious out there. That's it for this episode of the Say the Word podcast, where we explore how language is used in fiction, nonfiction, and poetry to connect us to what it means to be human and how to use curiosity to peel back the layers of what's keeping us from living the rich, meaningful lives we were always meant to be living. Be sure to share and subscribe so you don't miss an episode. And I would so appreciate it if you would go ahead and leave a review. Thanks for listening. I'm Cindy Givinoli, and I'll see you next week on Say the Word. Say the Word.